So the, the topic that I want to talk about is actually a really interesting topic. Um, and it speaks to an experience that I like to do every year, which is to prepare uh, for the Pesach Seder by reading children's books with my kids. I have two young children. I have older children and younger children. And with the older children, it's always fun to be able to share Torah and talk about some of the more evolved concepts associated with the Seder. But with my younger children, I like to sort of just read, you know, books that have diagrams and have pictures right, and show like uh, a different perspective, a different angle on uh, the experience of, uh, of, of Pesach and specifically Yitzhak Mitzrayim. And one of the things I'm always really fascinated by is to see the way in which um, different types of uh, books portray, at least in the, uh, the parts that have drawings, the Jews who were living in Mitzrayim, right? Meaning there were Jews, right, who were living in Mitzrayim. They spent a significant amount of time in servitude. And presumably, like all human beings, they had a very specific look to them, right? Now, we don't really have archaeological evidence, as far as I know, documenting exactly what the clothing was of the Jews in Mitzrayim. But what's fascinating about it is that when people draw pictures of these ancient Israelites, they're in a certain sense projecting their own view, right, as to what Jewish life was like back then. And oftentimes what they're doing is they're projecting their view of Jewish life today, right, back to the reality of the Egyptian context. So, for example, I read a book with my children that was certainly more Haredi in its orientation. And it was really fascinating because one of the sort of foundational ideological principles of Haredism is the idea that sort of, you know, the Judaism we practice today, is the same Judaism that was practiced in the time of Moshe, right? Not only in terms of the laws, but also in terms of the customs. So I was interested to see how they portrayed, right, Jews living in the time of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. And even though they didn't portray them as, you know, Jews living in Borough Park and looking like the Jews of Brooklyn and Borough Park, there were some, there was some overlap, right? Jews were wearing colorful bekishas and colorful strimals and colorful, you know, long coats. And in a certain sense, there was an awareness there that you know, the Jews living in the time of Mitzrayim didn't look exactly like the Jews of contemporary Borough Park. Nonetheless, they still at least were loosely, right, in their sort of own retelling of the story, connected to uh, the contemporary Jewish experience. So what I want to talk about today is a question that really doesn't get, I think, a sufficient amount of, of press, which is, what exactly did Judaism look like during the time of Mitzrayim, right? What, what did it mean to be a Jew, right? We know that, for example, in Parshat Shmot, it, it describes and it says, Hine am b'nei Yisrael rav atzu, right? There's a sense that am Yisrael, right, are a nation, are a people. But in what way did their nationalism, their, you know, national identity express itself? Now, the reason why this question is particularly challenging is because there, there was no Torah back then, right? So you have a situation where you have no Torah, right? Nonetheless, you have a Jewish identity. So it's an interesting thought experiment to try and figure out, well, what does it mean to have a Jewish identity divorced of any type of revelation? Okay, like what exactly was Judaism when you didn't have the Torah that only comes to fruition really post-Sinai? So what's really interesting about this is that obviously the rabbis of the Talmud and of the Midr and the Midrash were also sort of aware of this question of this tension. And you have different perspectives among the various uh, scholars trying to make sense of what does Judaism look like? What did Judaism look like in a world where we had no Torah? Okay. So the first model you can see here in source number three 
is the model that's articulated by the Rashbam. Okay, the Rashbam, Rashi's grandson, who's one of the most important shot commentators on the Torah, right? The Rashbam is interested in the question where the Torah describes Yaakov, right? The Torah says that Yaakov was able to observe, the language he uses in source number one is Mishmar Mitzvotai Chukotai V'toratai, right? It's talking about Yaakov's experience in the house of Laban. And it says that Yaakov, even though he's in Laban's place, certainly not in his sort of home space in terms of observance, he was still able to commit to the mitzvot, the chukim, and the Torah. Well, what does that mean, right? What does it mean for Yaakov to commit to a system of rules that hadn't been revealed yet, okay? So you look, for example, at source number three, the Rashbam tries to sort of modify the extent to which this is talking about the Torah in the broadest sense. If you look, for example, at Chukotai V'toratai, the Rashbam says, Right? That basically what he argues is, is that Jewish identity before Matan Torah was rooted in a refined commitment to Jewish ethics. What he says, Kulam Hayu no Hagin Matan Torah. Okay, so the Rashbam imagines that what did it mean to be a Jew pre-Matan Torah? What was Judaism in the time of you see on the So first of all, obviously, it was about theological belief, right, in the God of Israel, the Yudke Bavke. Right, there's an ancestral connection to the people of Israel. But practically, what did it mean? So the Rashbam is projecting the idea that what it meant practically was to be committed, right, to a certain ethical worldview, right, a certain ethical system that was in place before Matan Torah, and the Jewish people living at the time of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, were committed right, to that vision, the same way Yaakov was, right? Yaakov engages in halachic practices that are problematic. For example, he marries two sisters. But again, this is prima Torah. There's no halachic problem at that point to marry two sisters. So what was the force of Yaakov's identity? According to the Rashbam, he was committed to a life of ethics, right? And he, he basically was able to transmit this ethical commitment to his children and his grandchildren, who eventually make their way to Mitzrayim, and therefore, Jewish identity, according to the Rashbam, right, Jewish life during Mitzrayim was rooted in a firm commitment to a belief in one God, but also into an idea that this God demands ethical refinement. Okay, that's the first model. First model assumes Judaism without ritual is rooted exclusively in the role of the ethical. Obviously, there's a theological element, there's a national element, a familial element, but fundamentally, the way it expresses itself practically is through the lens, right, of the ethical. Okay, that's one model. Second model, which is much more expansive, a lot less intuitive, is a model that's articulated in a Gemara. Okay, this is a Gemara in source number two. This is a Gemara Masechet Yoma. The Gemara says, "Amar Rav, Kiyem Abraham Avinu Kol HaTorah Kula." Okay, the Gemara assumes, and it's hard to imagine historically, but the Gemara assumes that Avraham Avinu actually was able to observe the totality of the Torah before the Torah was given. In fact, in a more hyperbolic formulation, the Gemara later on says. Itema Ravashi quotes Rava Itema Ravashi, and it says, Kiem Avravinu, a feel Eruv Tafshilin, right? He says that Avram Avinu was not, able, not only able to observe the written law, but he was even able to observe the oral law, right? And this is particularly challenging because Eruv Tafshilin is a rabbinic innovation. So the claim here is that not only was Avram able to observe the written law, not only was he able to observe the oral law, but he was actually able to see into the future 
and observe even the rules that would only be regulated by the rabbis, right, thousands of years later, okay? Now, this specific Gemara has a lot of, there's a lot of discussion surrounding this Gemara in the context of uh, the source material, particularly, for example, in the Nefesh HaChaim, right, Rav Chaim of Olashen, who talks about what exactly this Gemara means, okay? But the idea basically is, is that irrespective of how you interpret the Gemara, the core impetus for Rav here is making a claim which is broader, namely that for Rav, there is no Judaism divorced of ritual. Okay, there may be a debate about how the ritual sort of transpired, right? Did Avram wear tefillin and look like ours? Again, we could debate that. But for the purposes of our argument today, you see that Rav is projecting a different model of Jewish identity. And he's saying, he's looking backwards and he's saying, there's no way that Avram Avinu could have been Avram Ha'ivri, Avram the Hebrew, Avram the Jew, right? And not observe all the rituals that we observe, okay? Now, irrespective of whether you think this is historically accurate or not, it's certainly a theological claim that Judaism divorced of any sort of formal ritualistic commitment is not real Judaism, okay? So, so far, what you see here are two different models. If I were to ask you, what did it mean to be Jewish at the time of, at the time of, according to the Rashbam, you would say, well, it meant that you believed in the Yudke Vavke God, it meant that you were a descendant of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. And practically what it meant was that you were committed to a life of virtue as expressed through ethical norms. That's one model. The second model is the model of the Gemara. The Gemara would say, well, it actually was more than that, right? It wasn't just a commitment to ethical refinement. It wasn't just a belief, right, in um, God as uh, one God in the world. But actually, there were certain rituals associated with Jewish life even though those, those rituals hadn't been revealed, nonetheless, they were part of the Jewish sort of experience from the time of Avram Avinu. Again, there's a lot to talk about there, but irrespective of whether you accept that in its totality, the impetus that's motivating that is an idea that Judaism divorced of ritual is just not Judaism, right? And think about it in the contemporary experience, right? When we think about what makes somebody an observant Jew, we default back to ritual. We talk about Shabbat, we talk about Kashrut, we talk about the rules of purity laws. So instinctively, we think Judaism is synonymous with ritual. And therefore, if you have somebody who's not engaged in ritual life, you know, he may be Jewish, right, formally, but in terms of his commitment to Judaism, well, it's not a, a really firm commitment because he doesn't feel a firm foundation in the world of the ritual. So even if you reject the model of Rav, you understand conceptually where he's coming from, okay? But there's a third model, which I think is the most fascinating. Okay, now when I was younger, I'm sure many of you uh, who are on the call right now remember Uncle Moishi. And uh, Uncle Moishi had a song called uh, Had a Jewish Name. Okay, and um, the idea is, is that Uncle Moishi claimed that sort of everybody has a Jewish name, right? And one of the unique features of the Jews having left Mitzrayim was that they were uniquely proud of their Jewish name. And not only that, but sort of just like the Jews back then. We're proud of their Jewish name. So we too should be proud of our Jewish name, okay? Now, where does this come from, right? Where's this idea that Jews having Jewish names and somehow being part of the experience of Mitzrayim? So actually, this is actually quite fascinating. There are various Midrashim that seem to pick up on this theme, albeit they sort of come across in different variants, okay? If you look, for example, at source number four, this is a Midrash from Baikar Rabbah, Okay, which seems to pick up on this theme. Now, again, this Midrash is also bothered by the question of what did Judaism look like at the time of Mitzrayim? Okay, remember, the first model is the ethical model. This Midrash is going to reject that. 
The second model is the full ritual model. This model, this Midrash will reject that. Well, what is the Midrash saying? Look what it says. Says, because of four things, the Jewish people were saved during Mitzrayim. They didn't change their name. They didn't change their dress. They didn't speak Lashon Hara. It's a complicated phrase to translate, but basically, there was nobody who was involved in any type of sexual impropriety. Okay. Now, again, this Midrash is a fascinating Midrash. There's a lot of scholarly, scholarly literature talking about the evolution of this Midrash. What you see here is that the Midrash is picking up on expressions of Judaism, which are not religious by nature. They're not ethical by nature. They're cultural. In what sense? Think about the examples. Right? The Jews didn't change their name. This is the source of the Uncle Moishi song. They didn't change their dress. Lo amru lashon hara. Now, lashon hara does not mean here they didn't speak lashon hara like you think about the Chavetz Chaim. What it means here is they never, if an Egyptian came along and said, where is your fellow Jew? You never told the Egyptian, right, where your fellow Jew was, right? You're loyal to your tribe. And similarly, when it says here you never engage in sexual impropriety, it doesn't mean that they didn't follow the laws of Nida per se. What it means is, is that a Jew was never going to engage in sort of cultural uh, heresy by engaging in intimacy with a, a Gentile. Okay, there actually are parallels to this in the world of uh, Malcolm X's autobiography. This was pointed out to me by my friend. You see similar themes, right? In Malcolm X talking about the idea that that uh, black slaves, right, felt that there were certain things that they, that sort of were perceived to be sort of uh, cultural heresy, and one of them was for somebody to engage in intimacy with uh, a white woman. And you see the same idea here, right? That the the, the group who's experiencing servitude wants to stay together as a cultural entity. So you see here is the midrash is trying to say. That the Jewish people during Mitzrayim, right? Yeah, they believed in one God. They may have been ethical, right? They certainly didn't have the Torah, so they weren't per, they weren't particularly invested in ritual life. But they had other ways to express their Judaism, and that was through Jewish culture, things which were not legislated, but nonetheless, right, very much part of an ethnic sense of cultural identity. If you look, for example, at the source number five, you see the exact same thing. Look what it says. It says. What does it mean the Jewish people were found in Egypt? Right, their dress, their food, right, that their food, their language, and their dress were different than the Egyptians. Okay, so what you see here is a very interesting description of Jewish identity during the time of Matan Torah. It's not about ritual, because obviously it's pre-Matan Torah. It's not about ethics. Remember, ethics is universal. It's not particular. So what is it about? It's about Jewish forms of cultural expression. It's about having a Jewish name. It's about wearing Jewish clothing. It's about eating Jewish food. Okay, now none of these things are halakhically mandated, right? None of these things are halakhically required, especially prior to Sinai. But even though they're not halakhically required, right, they're culturally powerful. And it's exactly this cultural model which the Midrash is picking up on, right, and trying to assess, wait a second, what is it that made Judaism unique uh, during uh, the time of, of, of Yitzhak Mitzrayim? The Jews had a unique capacity to express themselves culturally. Okay, now, what's particularly fascinating about this third model is the question becomes, well, wait a second, we understand the first model talks about ethics. Ethics for Judaism are eternal. Right, Jews have the same responsibilities ethically as they did at the time of Avram they have today. Right? Judaism ethics are an eternal commitment. 
Okay, ritual also. We believe that ritual is something which is eternal, right? The applications may be temporal, but the core principles that motivate ritual are eternal. What about culture, right? What does it mean for Jews to have their unique culture, right? And if you're going to claim that Jews during the time of Mitzrayim had their unique culture, okay, that's great. But how is that in any way relevant for Jews living after Har Sinai? Was the cultural model that was articulated by uh, these Midrashim, was that a unique feature of a time in Jewish history where we had no Torah? But now that we have a Torah, so the Torah becomes our culture, right? Halacha becomes our culture. Where do you say no? Or do you say that culture is a precursor, right? It is the foundational element upon which religious identity is built, right? To give you an example of this, Rav Tzihudu Kuk used to say that we say every day, when we say, Asher Basar Vanu Mikol Hamim, First comes nationalism, right? First, you have to have a national spirit, a sense of, you know, camaraderie, right? A body, right? And then on top of that, we have rules, right? That sort of inspire us. But fundamentally, you have no unique national vision. If you have no unique cultural identity, so in what way are you sort of a national entity? Now, this becomes very fascinating as Jewish history evolves. For example, there are some sources that try to sort of describe, right, the centrality of culture, even in a post Yitzhak Mitzrayim context, okay? For example, if you look at source number six, you have a medieval text called the Sefer Mitzvot HaGadol, right? He describes how even though um, it sounds like all of these Midrashim were only relevant in a context when we had no Torah, he says, no, all of those imperatives that we had at that time are still operative even post Matan Torah. Look what he says. Okay. So he says it's the same principle, right? In other words, it's not sufficient for a Jew to be invested in ethics. It's not even sufficient for a Jew to be invested in ritual, right? There's something more that's demanded. What is the greater demand that we are insist that we have to sort of carry over? That's a commitment to a sense of cultural distinctiveness. This idea that we look different, that our names are different, right, is still a relevant variable even after Har Sinai. Now, immediately, there, sorry, even after Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Now, there was, immediately, there was pushback in the Middle Ages. For example, in source number eight, I quoted here from Reno Bachia, who says the opposite. He says, no, this whole cultural paradigm that's described by the Midrash is only relevant when we had no Torah. He says, but now that we have a Torah, right? Torah defines our culture. Yeah, when we had no Torah, we had to dress differently. But how do we dress differently now? By dressing in a dignified way, by dressing in a tzanuel way, in a humble way, right? What is our new food ethic? It's not eating cholent, it's keeping kosher. So the Rebbe Bachia says that basically that model, remember we have three models, the ritual model, the ethical model, and the cultural model. And he says the cultural model is only relevant, primatan Torah. But now that we have a Torah, Torah becomes our culture. Since Torah becomes our culture, right, we don't have to care anymore about looking different or eating different or having different names. All those things are trivial, right? Our culture is defined by the halachas that we're supposed to follow. If you fast forward from the Middle Ages to the early modern period, it's actually a really fascinating debate about this exact topic that came up in 19th century Germany, okay? 19th century Germany, there's a debate going on between two different groups of rabbis. 
for the purpose of simplicity, we'll call group one ultra-Orthodox rabbis, and group two non-Orthodox rabbis. It's not an exact uh, carryover, but it captures the point. This is based on an article by a scholar at Hebrew University named Michael Silber. Okay, Michael Silber wrote an article called The Emergence of Ultra-Orthodoxy, The Invention of the Tradition. He tries to demonstrate here this exact debate between the Sefer Mitzvot Gadol and Rabbeinu Bachia, which was very much alive during the Middle Ages, carries over to the early modern period, okay? And the way, the way in which it expresses itself is in a really fascinating way, right? What is the claim, basically, of what he calls the neo-Orthodox, what we call the modern Orthodox, right? The claim, basically, is, is that what does it mean to be a good Jew? What it means to be a good Jew means to follow the laws of Moshe, right? To follow the 613 mitzvot. If a person wants to be culturally European, there's no problem. Right? There's no requirement for a person to look different aesthetically. There's no need to wear clothing that distinguishes you from non-Jews. There's no need to have a separate Jewish name or to have, let's say, separate Jewish food. All those things are secondary. What fundamentally defines who we are is our theology and our practice, our ritual practice. But there's a very interesting rabbi who's living at the exact same time named Rabbi Akiva Yosef Schlesinger. Rabbi Akiva Yosef Schlesinger is a fascinating personality. And he develops a theology which really becomes the foundation for what we know today as ultra-Orthodoxy, okay? But it's actually a very interesting model, okay? And he tries to argue that the cultural expressions of Judaism that were so important to the Midrashic sources we saw earlier, right, were not listed in a trivial fashion. Rather, what they are, are the foundation through which Judaism is built. Look at his proof text. This is an amazing insight. Look what he says here. He says, precisely these seemingly non-confessional elements were invested by the ultra-Orthodox with supreme religious valence, right? He says, the ultra-Orthodox were claiming, yeah, of course, there's no halakhic requirement to wear, I don't know, a strimal, right? There's no halakhic requirement to call your name uh, Yaakov instead of Jacob. But nonetheless, you have to do it. Why? He says, the, the, these things, which our saintly forefathers transmitted to us, are the very root of Jewishness. Why? Name, language, and dress. Following the Khatam Sofer, the Khatam Sofer is the founder, right? Intellectual godfather of ultra-Orthodoxy. These three, Shem, Lashon, Mabush, in Hebrew, were called by their acronym, Shalem. And this is a fascinating history. Because the acronym alludes to the experience of Jacob, who has successfully withstood the cultural temptations of Lavan, his father-in-law. And Jacob arrives intact, Shalem, in the city of Shechem. Shalem, according to these thinkers, is an acronym for shame, name, lashon, language, and mem mabush, clothing, okay? Now, this is fascinating, by the way, parenthetically, because there is no midrash, actually, that links all those three together. It's a separate sheet, okay? But what's interesting here is that he takes these three themes, he links it on to the terminology called shalem, and he says, ah, you see why Yaakov was able to survive outside of his cultural space? Right. The reason why is because he preserved the shalem. He had a different name, right? He had a different dress, and he had a different language. Look what he says here. If God forbid you remove these from Israel, then all the commandments are only an empty garment without a body. For these things are the very body of the Israelite that make him a Jew. Because of them, we have became a people. And this is an amazing proof text. He quotes a citation from the book of Jonah, where it says, I am a Jew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven. Okay, the story here is an amazing story where they ask Jonah, who are you? And Jonah says, Ivri Anochi, I am a Hebrew. Ve'et Hashem Elokei Hashem Ayman Look what he says here. The order of events is intimated in the verse. 
first came Hebrew nationhood, right? I am a Hebrew, and only then followed the worship of the Lord Judaism. Okay, so you see what's going on here is, is that the ultra-Orthodox living in this time period are trying to argue is that, of course, formally speaking, there's no requirement to look different, okay? But it speaks to what it means for us to be a national unit, right? In fact, Professor Silber has an observation of what he says here. It is this great paradox that of all the different groups in Hungary, it was the ultra-Orthodox who came closest to the modern ideal of Jewish nationalism in a time when in all of Europe, one could count all number of Jewish nationalists on one hand. Okay, so what you see here is that this idea that somehow the Jews in Mitzrayim were defined by their cultural uniqueness, right, becomes the foundation for 19th century ultra-Orthodox identity. But it's more than simply anti-assimilationist tendency here. The claim is, is that there's something powerful about the human experience that absent culture, right, absent the body, right? The soul has no place to dwell. Whereas the modern Orthodox argument was, listen, all these cultural, these cultural variables were only relevant at a time when we had no Torah. But now that we have a Torah, right, we default back to our identity, which is rooted in what? Ethics, ritual, and theology. Now, how does this play out in 20th and 21st century? So, for example, if you look at source number nine, this is a response by Rav Moshe Feinstein, okay? Rav Moshe Feinstein here is talking about living in America, and what he's experiencing is American clothing, jeans, for example, right? And he wonders, is there any halakhic problem with dressing according to the modern fashion? Now, let's think for a second. If you're thinking in terms of the model of Rabbeinu Bachia, or, for example, the modern Orthodox rabbis of Hungary, 19th century, there's no problem at all. Why not? Because, again, that idea that Jews had to be culturally distinct was only relevant at the time of Mitzrayim because there was no Torah. But now that we have a Torah, what's the point, right? What does it accomplish, okay? So Ramosha Feinstein basically says, look what he says, achar matan Torah, medina. There's no requirement, right? Ramosha himself, even though he pulls back a little bit later on, but he clearly says that basically all of this insistence of being culturally distinctive was critical in an environment where we had no other way to express ourselves, right? But since we had no other way to express ourselves, we needed culture. But now that we have the Torah, right, culture is effectively trivial. Now, again, it's, it's a little more nuanced if you look more in the Ramosha, but basically what he's saying is endorsing the view which says culture is no longer relevant. But there are some sources here I want to show you at the end that actually push back against this a little bit. I'll give you an example of this. In source number 10, you have a responsa from Rabbi Ovadi Yosef. Rabbi Ovadi Yosef is a rabbi living in Israel. He passed away probably about seven, eight years ago. And he's talking about here the requirement to wear a kippah. Okay? Now, the kippah is a fascinating example of halakhic development because, again, it doesn't have the deepest sources in the Talmud. Okay? But over time, it becomes part of Jewish practice. And it's a cultural symbol as much as it is a religious symbol. And some of the early sources say that one of the reasons why Jews, Jewish men, have to wear a kippah is to separate themselves from non-Jews. We have a 13th century text that says that the reason why Jews cover their head is to distinguish themselves from the non-Jewish world. Okay? So Rabbi Vadi Yosef is living in Israel, where it's a Jewish majority, right? And if it's a Jewish majority, well then, how can it be, right, that the variable that says we have to separate ourselves from non-Jews, how can that be culturally relevant, right? There aren't that many non-Jews in Israel. It's only 20% 20, 20 of the population. 
So here Avadi Yosef develops an interesting theory. And he says that the yarmulke in 20th century Israel serves a different function, right? In what sense? That the yarmulke now is not only about separating you culturally from non-Jews, right? It's about separating you culturally from secular Jews. And Ravadi Yosef is writing this in a context where secular Zionism right, was anti-religious, right? We're not talking about contemporary, you know, Sephardic traditional Jews. We're talking about an anti-religious sentiment that's permeating Ashkenazi secular Zionism. Ravadi Yosef says, ah, oh, you see that it's true that halakhically speaking, right, there are certain rules at play, but culturally, we have a responsibility to distinguish ourselves in a way that affirms, right, that we are part of the community of the believers. And I'll show you one last source. This is a source written by a rabbi, contemporary rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer Malavi, who writes a book called Pina Halacha. Okay. And he's talking about here about wearing a kippah, particularly in an Israeli context. And he's talking about, about whether or not there's any requirement to wear a kippah of a certain size. And he says that even though formally speaking, there's no requirement, right, to wear a kippah of a certain size, he says there is value, right, in having the yarmulke be sufficiently large that can be seen by everybody. Why? He says, because again, it's no longer about just religion per se, right? It's a cultural affirmation. He says, right? another Jew is proud of the fact, right? That he's willing, right? To proudly endorse the values of the Torah. And he makes the exact same observation here in source number 11 about the tzitzit. He says that the tzitzit, even though halakhically speaking, there's no problem with tucking in the tzitzit. He says that nowadays it's become a symbol, right? Of identity. There's value, right, in sort of affirming culturally, right, that you're proud, right, in your own Jewish cultural heritage. So what, what I want, really wanted to do today is show you that, you know, when people talk about what does it mean to be Jewish in Mitzrayim, right, it's actually quite complicated, right, because we don't really have any clear evidence as to what Jewish life was like in the time of the Egyptian servitude. And then what's going on is you have rabbis from the time of the Talmud onward trying to project and trying to think to themselves, what did it mean to be Jewish while not having a Torah? And some rabbis say, you know what? That's impossible. Jews always observe the Torah. That's the model of the Talmud. At least one must have that statement of Rav. Some rabbis say, you know what? Judaism before the Talmud, before the Torah, simply an ethical commitment right, rooted in a theology and a one God. But some rabbis have a more ambitious claim and say that Judaism divorce of Torah is fundamentally survives based on commitment to cultural distinctiveness. And the question becomes, how is that relevant nowadays? Some rabbis say it's irrelevant, right? It's totally irrelevant. You can call yourself Steve, you can call yourself Shalom, you can call yourself Ruth, you can call yourself Rivka, it doesn't matter, right? What matters is that you observe the law, that you, you behave ethically. And some rabbis argue, no, that model is still relevant today, why? Because that model, right, affirms our cultural identity Right? And on top of that cultural identity, we build our sense of religious commitment. And even rabbis today, like, for example, Pina Halacha and other rabbis, who are not affiliated with ultra-Orthodoxy, you do see some of the language of cultural expression making its way, especially in Israel, right, where Judaism as a national identity right, is much more pronounced. Any questions? I apologize again for the video. But any questions? Yeah, Ruben. Hi, Rav. First of all, thank you very much. It's very uh, insightful and interesting. I just wanted to ask with regards to um, specifically uh, Kippa and Sitsis nowadays, um, where where would the line 
where would you uh, kind of say the line is between, you know, you brought the sources saying that we should be proud of our, of our heritage and uh, to, to be uh, proud of the Torah values, but especially when you're around a lot of non-religious Jews, um, how, uh, where, where's the line between being proud and let's say halachic arrogance and thinking that, you know, you're above the people who aren't uh, keeping halacha uh, and, and, and people might, I don't know, sense that about you because you're wearing uh, keep our sitsis or how you feel about yourself. So what's the line, I guess, between being proud and, and arrogance? Right, it's, it's a great question. In fact, much of the literature uh, around tzitzit talks about this question of arrogance. The way I would frame it basically is that arrogance is primarily sort of like a, a question of posture. So if, somebody, if, for example, you're wearing tzitzit and you're arrogant, yeah, you have a problem, right? If you're somebody who acts in a way which is refined and menschlich and calm and respectful, so I would argue the opposite, right? People would say, wow, Ruben Dershowitz, now again, where's the tzitzit? And you see how the tzitzit impacts him. He's somebody who never raises his voice. He's somebody who's always there to help. He's somebody whenever there's an exam, right? He's, he's the one who's willing to send around notes if somebody has any problems. So I would argue that there is always this risk, but I think more times than none, if you see religious life as an opportunity to really engage in personal betterment, then you don't have the problem of arrogance. On the contrary, right? People start to associate Jews, right, with better behavior. Now that should that that's the goal, right? The goal is is that the Torah says that people look at us and say we're an am chacham v'navon, that we're a wise and discerning people. So the hope would be is that people see a Jew wearing tzitzit, they think, oh, that's a guy who's going to be respectful. That, that would be the ideal model. Okay. Any other questions? Okay. So thank you so much again. I apologize for the technical difficulty. I'm going to get my computer fixed tomorrow. So next time this won't be a problem but i uh, wish everybody a chag kasher v'sameach and thank you so much for joining joining